Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. This is the No Water Methodist podcast, and I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm glad you have chosen to download and play this podcast. We uh, we take a lot of joy in being able to provide content that is spiritually engaging and hopefully motivating and uh, edifying. Uh, we've been going through Paul's letter to the church in Rome for 15 weeks. This is chapter 15. We've just been doing a chapter a week. And it's been really a good experience for me and for everyone who talks to me about it. So what I want to urge you to do is, you know, listen to this one if you weren't able to listen to it last week or this last Sunday. But then also keep track of the ones you have been listening to and listen to the ones you haven't listened to. I probably could have found a smoother way to say that. But the whole intention behind this is that everyone who's been doing this with us feels like they understand the book of the letter to the Romans, as much as reasonably can be on a, a once-over preach-through. So um, I just invite you, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of this. All of these episodes have been put up, and, um, you know, what do you have better to do than to understand the Bible? You know, the answer is nothing. So uh, I'd urge you to do that next Sunday, uh, this upcoming Sunday, we're, we're finishing up the book and then the following Sunday is All Saints Sunday when we're going to acknowledge the the heritage and legacy of those who came before us. So um, you might just consider joining us in person, if at all possible. Uh, as wonderful as worship is, listening to it or watching it online, it's just a completely different thing in person where you can shake people's hands and uh, just smell the smells and, and hear the sounds very different. So um, anyway, we, we're glad to offer this podcast for you, but um, we always hope it directs you to closer relationship with Christ through his people. So I guess that's it for today. I really hope you enjoy. Oh, I, I should do some kind of theological priming for what I actually talked about. I uh, w- This is coming out of the, well, no, I did the setup. I did the setup on Sunday, so I'm not going to do it. You just enjoy it. We'll go right into it. We have 20 minutes to uh, read through chapter 15 of Romans. This begins on page 1764 of your pew Bibles. I'd invite you to open up and join me. We only have one chapter left. We're going to close out the book of Romans next week, and then after that it's going to be All Saints the following Sunday, and then I don't know what we'll do after that, so I'll take a vote next week. Romans, uh, as we've talked about, is written by Paul to a church that was divided between Jews and Gentiles. They weren't sure how much they shared in or how different they were. And as a reminder, the first several chapters established that both Jews and Gentiles were born in sin, in need of salvation, which comes through repentance and is only found in Christ. Okay, so all that applies to Jews and Gentiles. Um, There have been some high-minded conversations about why the Jews didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, There have also been practical conversations about what implications this has for us and our role with one another, how we treat one another, how we don't retaliate when people harm us, how we submit to authority, 
And those have been hard messages that, that we have really struggled with. And by we, I don't just mean me. I mean, uh, people in the pews have talked to me about this midweek and said, man, I'm really just trying to think this through and figure out how it applies to my life. Last week was a hard one. Chapter 14 dealt with scrupulousness. People with scruples are people who take issue with things that may or may not be important. There is a, a, a word in Christian theology that I actually think is helpful to hold on to, even though it's a long one. The word is adiaphora, A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A. It means things that are not essential. So there are things in the church that people sometimes divide on that are not essential. And we talked about some of these last week. Is it worth a division in the body if somebody doesn't like the color of the carpet? No, not really. No, that's not worth dividing believers. There are other issues that do become worthy of division in the body. Um, and then there, it's hard to navigate between those two. The Bible doesn't have a checklist of these are the things you can and should divide over, and these are the things you shouldn't. Although it does supply, uh, you know, the divinity of Christ. That's obviously something worth dividing over. The need for salvation, that's something obviously worth dividing over. Um, last week, he presented two things that are not worth dividing over. Which holidays you observe, and if you eat meat, sacrifice to idols. He says, whatever you do, do it in a way that brings you closer to Jesus. So if you abstain from meat, do it in a way that brings you closer. If you eat it, do it in a way that brings you closer to Jesus. And then the second thing is, do it in a way that is not a stumbling block for other believers. Because you're going to find people who are weak in faith in the church, who are scrupulous. And if you misbehave, if you behave in such a way that it harms their faith, well, Jesus said, any of you who causes one of my little ones to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest part of the sea. Isn't that a fun threat? That makes me think of the mob, you know, swimming with the fishies, you know. But Jesus warns us we should not be doing anything that is a stumbling block to someone else in faith. Our job is to help people come closer to Jesus. It would be nice if nobody was scrupulous, but the truth is a lot of people really struggle with scrupulousness. So another issue um, in the church, is it okay to drink alcohol? Bible talks about, you know, Paul talks to Timothy, have a glass of wine at the end of every evening, but then he also says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine. You know, and there are some people who can drink one drink or maybe two and be just fine. There are a lot of people that cannot stop, and it's really hard to govern this in the church, and I talked about how I've decided whenever people come over to my house, they'll never be offered alcohol. doesn't matter if they can hold their liquor or not. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody, you know, and that's why we don't have alcohol in communion. We don't want to cause anybody to stumble. Now, chapter 15 picks up from there this common, this, this idea of how far am I expected to sacrifice my comfort, my conscience, in order to help someone else in faith. In America, we're very extremely individualistic. We don't think about other people. We just go, here's what's good for me and mine. I'm not going to think about anybody else. Well, the Bible does not affirm that. The Bible says we have to be thinking of other people. So how far do we go in that? Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong, you can insert in faith, the people who are not scandalized by scrupulousness, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those 
who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now we're going to come back to, to hope. That's a, a, an important theme in this chapter, but let's not skip over the first part. It's saying that we who are strong should sacrifice. We should bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Because we are here to please our neighbors for their good. And what is good? God. We are here to bring our neighbors close to God and do what it takes. And did Jesus model the way? Absolutely. Do you think Jesus enjoyed being sacrificed? He hated it. Anyone who's ever been sacrificed hated it. Why did he do it then? He did it for our sakes. And he's saying that if you are strong, you do not live for yourself anymore. You live for the sake of others. You're saved. You're fine. There are other people who are not saved, and they are not fine, and it is your job to minister to them as Christ has ministered to you. I, I preach some version of this every week. What Christ has done for you, you now do for others. That's how this relationship works. He does not save you so that you can hoard it and not offer it to others. He does not selflessly pour himself out for you so that you can selfishly retain his spirit. He shared his spirit with us so that we can share with others. He shared salvation with us so we can share with others. That's the whole point. That's our way of life. Now, one of the things that I, I forgot to preach about in Delaware, I'm remembering now, I said this morning, one of the things I should talk about, one of the things that I've noticed dividing the church so much is when a new person comes to faith and they feel so strongly that they've got a hold of the truth that they just slander everybody who's already in the church and they say everybody has to abide by my understanding of the Bible. It's a totally natural thing. It happens all the time. But that's what's responsible for half these churches in town. Somebody new came to faith and rather than stick with an established church, they say we're going to do it our way. We've got the truth. Everybody else is sold out. And that's a great way for Satan to continue dividing the church. When we are established in faith, our job is not to divide and start our own thing. Our job is to do everything possible to welcome everybody in on the condition that we're remaining faithful to Christ Jesus. But you can be so scrupulous about these things that you unnecessarily cause division and kick people out. And that's something we should be worried about because, once again, Jesus said, if you cause any of his little ones to stumble, there will be eternal punishment. Causing division does that. Anytime you're going to divide from another believer, you better make sure it's something worth dividing about. Because if it's not and you do it, then you've made your faith about you and not about Christ and not about others. And I'm fully aware that we're in the context of a denomination that is currently dividing. And we need to make sure that if we're going to divide, it is worthy of division. Is sexual morality something worthy of division within the church? That's the primary presenting issue. And I would be gracious about it and say that there's leeway if we did not have Romans chapter 1. If we did not have Paul scolding people in the church in 1 Corinthians for sexual immorality. If it was not found across the Old and New Testaments a concern for sexual morality, then I would say, hey, maybe this is a diaphora. But the scriptural witness is uniform. People who have died to themselves and been born again in Christ do not misbehave sexually. And that's not just the gay stuff. I'm not hating on the gays up here. There are a thousand different ways to sin sexually, none of which are okay. And we're not going to pick on one at the expense of others. You have to focus on all of them.
We're not going to do that today, though, because <laughs> this chapter doesn't talk about it. I'm just making clear, when you're navigating what's worthy of division and what's not, the greatest thing to do is consult your Bible. Is this something that the Bible talks about? You know something that the Bible doesn't talk about? Gambling money. It talks about love of money being an issue, and I think that's pretty close to gambling, but even so, if I find out that one of you has gone to the casino, I'm not going to call you out and say, hey, you're not a believer if you go to the casino. If you ask me about it, I'm going to say, Love of money is a real big issue. You probably shouldn't be gambling. And I, I've, I did not camp out in front of the casino in South Coffeeville this last week and see who went in. I've thought about it. But there are certain things where there might be some leeway. There are some other things where there really isn't, and we need to have that discernment. Let's go on. Verse 5. No, verse 4. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. It's talking about the Bible, the Old Testament. That was what was written before here. So the Bible was written so that we can learn the endurance and encouragement and have hope. That's what it said. I, I mixed the words around a little bit, but endurance and encouragement lead to hope. He's going to come back to these things in verse 5. May the God who gives endurance. So the scriptures give it, but the scriptures are in, in accordance with who God is. So the, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you, you all, y'all, the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had. Excuse me, Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is something found throughout the New Testament. We are called not to be separate from one another, but unified together. One heart and one mind, one voice, one doctrine, one Lord, one spirit. We're called to unity. And he's saying you get that from the scriptures, which are fully in accordance with God, who, who is the one who gives these gifts. Do you want to have some encouragement from God? Do you want to endure for his name's sake? Then read your Bible and walk faithfully with the Lord. It, it really is that simple. Verse 5. Nope, verse 6. Nope, verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Do you want to bring praise to God? Then accept one another. Because has Christ Jesus accepted you? Yes. So it's, that's the relationship. He gives to us, so we give to others. If he accepted us, we accept others. Now, that doesn't mean without condition. Jesus doesn't let people into his kingdom without condition. But that does mean that he gives his love without condition, right? And that means we give our love without condition. That doesn't mean that we, we have no boundaries with people. That means that we do not practice favoritism. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So we're going to go through a series of prophecies from the Old Testament. You'll see footnotes that tell you at the bottom of the page where they come from in the Old Testament. He's saying Jesus has become a servant to the Jews and is now welcoming Gentiles into the household of God. This is something he's already established but he's showing that the Old Testament scriptures, which he just directed us to for endurance and encouragement, that they point to Jesus being the fulfillment of these prophecies. So here we go. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. So it's going to talk about Gentiles in each one of these. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. Who is Jesse? David. 
Did y'all just let her get it or did really nobody else know it? Jesse was the father of King David. And he's also my son, yes. Comes from the Hebrew Yishai. Hebrew Yishai, it means uh, gift from God. But Jesse was the father of David. There was a prophecy that the root of Jesse, that was David directly, but then Jesus is of the line of David, remember? This is a prophecy. The root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. It's talking about Jesus, right? Verse 13. May the God of hope, the, Hebrew, the Greek word is elpis or elpidas, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as y'all trust in him. It is second person plural, so it's okay that I did that. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that word hope a lot in this chapter. Hope is something that doesn't have a lot of currency in our culture. We are very practical people. We're very material people. Hope is the, the substance of faith. Hope, hope is absolutely non-optionally a part of the Christian faith. Um, hope, hope doesn't fail. We need to have that hope. What are we hoping in? We're hopeful that God is faithful, that he will fulfill what he has promised, namely that we will be made righteous as Christ is righteous and that we, we will be welcomed into his kingdom. I'm not perfect yet. I have not been perfected yet. I am being sanctified. I have hope that God will bring to completion what he started in me. I have hope that God will bring to completion what he started in the world when he sent Jesus. His kingdom is coming. One day, everything will be different. It will not be the same as all the other days that came before. There will be an end to this era. Everything will be burned away with fire. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and they will be united, and God will reign on earth, and we will be with him for eternity. I have this hope. This hope is connected to everything that I am supposed to do and feel and say and think, and it's the same for you. We, that hope is what motivates us. That hope is what orients it. That is, that is what informs all of our lives, and if we don't have that hope, then we're going to be worldlians like everyone else concerned with getting enough money. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? What we do about these enemies we don't like? When that's what's on your mind, you're not going to live the life that God has for you. When you have the hope of holiness, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We sang these words a little while ago. If we believe those words, then hope is absolutely essential. I feel like I'm speaking pretty clearly today. I hope you're receiving this very clearly. Verse 14. I myself am convicted, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. I said convicted. He said convinced. This is where he gets a little diplomatic. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Well, if that was 100% true, would he be writing that le this letter? No. They have goodness. They've been instructed, he says, verse 15. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave to me. So he's anticipating that these are normal adults. So when you instruct children, you can tell them their business, and they go, okay, yeah, you're a grown-up, and I'm a kid, and they receive it. When you instruct adults, you have to say, now I know you know this already, and you've been doing this for a long time. Just have a couple little tweaks here and there. Just, you know, receive that if it's, that's what he's doing here. He's just been telling these grown-ups their business. They've been Christians for a while. He's been telling them that they've been understanding things wrong. He's been correcting them. Now he's kind of stepping back and saying, look, I already know you know what you're doing. 
You have goodness. You've been instructed. I'm just reminding you of some things, okay? And then he says, and it's my job to remind you. Verse 16, I've been given to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says, that's what God's doing, and he's told me that I'm, I'm to be a part of that. I'm to be his instrument in this. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Does this sound like he's bragging about what he's done? It'd be very easy to read it that way, but he's being very clear. It's God working in him. It's not him. I mean, it is him doing it, but it's God who's doing it through him. So he's giving glory to God. Have you ever felt like you're an instrument of God? I'll tell you, the, the, the most powerful thing for me was when I had a, a three-year-old Jesse full of rage screaming and hating me, and all I felt for him was love back, and I was just perfectly gentle. I'm not that type of person. I'm a person who naturally uh, gives hate for hate. It doesn't matter if it's a three-year-old or a 300-year-old, but there's something. God worked through me to love this child who was full of hate for me. And there have been other times where, you know, somebody cuts me off in traffic and once upon a time I would have honked my horn. You know, it's simple things like that, but it can grow into big things. Like someone hating me on the floor of annual conference and me having no animosity towards them whatsoever. That's what God does in us. He works his, he reworks us so that our responses, our innermost inbuilt responses change. God uses us as vessels, as channels of his peace. He did that for Paul. Verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, that's talking about like miracles, healings and speaking in tongues and stuff like that, through the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. If you've read Acts, if you've ever seen a map of where he traveled, it was all over the Middle East and and modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor back then. He says, God has worked through me in all these areas. Verse 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I I would not be building on someone else's foundation. So if you think about a house, the house is built on top of the foundation, right? And he's saying that's what a church, not the building, is the people. So when you bring the gospel into an area, you're laying a foundation for what becomes uh, a, a church, not the building, the people. And he's saying, I like being the one to lay the foundation. I don't like coming along when someone else has laid the foundation and trying to build on top of it, which is what he's trying to do in Rome. He, he, he prefers to be the first builder. Verse 21, rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see. It's talking about the Gentiles. And those who have not heard will understand. He's saying, I'm a part of fulfilling that prophecy. That is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. So he's saying, I've wanted to come to you, but I've, I've been telling the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. But he's writing this to people who have heard the gospel. Verse 23, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so while I go to Spain, when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he's, he's planning this cross. He, he's over here in the western Mediterranean. He's about to go to Jerusalem, which is right on the far side of the Mediterranean Sea. He's planning on coming up and going to Rome down in, in, in the Italy boot, and he's planning on going over to Spain. That's what he's got planned. And if you know your history, 
Does that plan ever come to pass? He never makes it to Spain. Does he get to Rome? Yeah, because he's about to go to Jerusalem. And spoiler alert, he gets arrested and then he asks to be put on trial in Rome. And he is put on trial in Rome a couple years later and he's killed there. So just know that as we go through the rest of this. Verse 25. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. He's talking about a monetary gift. He's talking about taking offerings from one region to give to another region. Because in those early days, and to some extent today, Christians shared in worldly material wealth. Because that's a, an integral part of the faith, right? Verse 27. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Solid logic. It still applies today. That's why so much evangelical Christian money goes over to Israel, the state, the official Jewish state. You know, that, that's an extension of these scriptures given here. Verse 28. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution... I will then go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Now, I actually believe that part was true. I believe that whenever he came in chains to Rome, he came in the full measure of the blessing of Christ for the church in Rome. We'll talk about that just a little bit more in a second. I urge you, this is verse 30, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. So how can they be in solidarity with him? How can they join in his struggle? By praying for him. He's the only saint in the New Testament to ask people to pray for him. The most loving thing you can do for a friend is pray for them. He says, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Half, one of those two prayers were received. He was able to bring the gift. He was favorably received by the believers. However, the other half of this prayer, the un unbelievers got a hold of him. They hated him. They tried to kill him. Verse 32, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul, it's detailed in Acts of the Apostles. He was taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea Philippi. And then he had to ride on a ship across the Mediterranean Sea to Rome, where he stayed in the household of Caesar and was around many people that he was able to minister to for years before he was finally put on trial and killed. He was in Rome for a while before he was killed. I, I think it reasonable to assume that he came in contact with the church in Rome while he was there, to assume that he brought his blessings and that they refreshed one another before he died for Christ Jesus. I believe that God is faithful in fulfilling the bulk of the prayers offered to him. He just doesn't do it in our time and our way. And there are other times when God doesn't fulfill. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians, he said that he was given a thorn in the flesh, some kind of chronic pain in his body that wouldn't go away. He prayed to the Lord three times, Lord, pray, take it from me. The Lord said, nope, my faith, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And God was glorified when Paul also was killed for his namesake. I'm going to return back to this notion of hope, and we're going to end on this notion of hope. Because once again, it was this hope that motivated Paul 
that God would fulfill his promises in the end. It's that hope that gave Paul the integrity and the courage to live boldly and faithfully against enemies who hated him and eventually killed him. It's that same hope that should be motivating us to live faithfully and boldly today. And so the whole point of reading through these scriptures, it said today, is for endurance and encouragement. And you need to be prepared to endure for the days ahead where things are going to be hard. People are going to hate you for your faith. Things are going to be difficult. As Remember the children's sermon. There are going to be days or even seasons of life where you don't feel good. But God is still good and he's still calling you to be good. This is the preparation time. We've all gathered in Christ's name. We're about to go out into the world. And the point is not to, oh, that was a nice message, Pastor. I'm, that was really nice. I'm going to go home and think about worldly things now. No, the point is to take on that hope, if you haven't already, to orient your entire life around it and to live your life with that hope that builds that encouragement and endurance that is needed for the days ahead. There's dark days ahead. But on the other side of them is a realm of light where our Father is. And do you want to be there? I sure do. So we go through the darkness. We go through the valley of the shadow of death. And we let that hope guide us all the way. And we know that God is with us all the way. Amen.